Welcome to a Millennial's Guide to Real Estate Investing. Here is your host, Antoine Martel. Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of Real Estate Investing with Antoine Martel. Today I have a guest who is lives in Long Beach, California. He's a millennial real estate investor, has a full-time job. His name is James Allen. How are you, man? Good, man. How's it going? Very good. So yeah, so we met a couple months ago. I think we met over bigger pockets. I thought you had a cool story. You were investing out of state. You had a couple sure. of rental properties while working your full-time job. And um, cool story about James is actually he doesn't he doesn't use any turnkey providers. He actually just finds these teams himself and um, he analyzes the markets and finds a team, whether that be the contractor, property management, or realtor, um, to help help him as his boots on the ground while having a full-time job. So I thought I would bring you on to kind of share your story. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. No problem. So I guess let's start with what made you interested in real estate investing? Was it um, you know the long-term cash flow goals of you getting out of your day job, or what made you want to, um, and I guess piqued your interest in real estate and real estate investing? Yeah, I mean, funny thing, man. Um, you know, it, it actually started with hitting a low point. You know, me and my wife were kind of living a kind of a paycheck-to-paycheck -paycheck lifestyle for a long time, and uh, my wife was pregnant with one of our kids. And um, it hit a point where um, she took a break from work for a long time. And during that time, we uh, started cash flowing negatively as far as income was concerned. And we, we came to a point where we accumulated a lot of debt, um, hit about 25K in debt, actually, of, uh, you know, from a mixture of credit cards and different stuff like that. And uh, I was just like, Dude, I never want to hit this kind of point in life ever again. And I was like, this is the worst feeling in the world. And I want to do, I want to get to a point um, in my life where I can be wealthy enough to not worry about any kind of things or any kind of cost in my life. So that way I can be not just debt free, but kind of live a life of freedom where I can, uh, you know, afford my kids any opportunity they, they need or, you know, just never come back to that point. Uh, so anyway, I started doing research and I was like, what do people do to become wealthy? And so I just started, you know, doing a lot of research online and over and over and over again, I kept coming back to real estate, real estate, real estate. And, um, I, I saw stats like, you know, 90% of millionaires are involved in real estate in some way or another and things like that. And I started realizing, you know, there might be something to this real estate thing after all, you know? So, um, that was kind of the beginning of it all. And uh, yeah, from there, it was just focusing on a clear path of how can I get started on this this journey to real estate. And I just decided that I'm just going to do whatever I have to do to become as knowledgeable as I can on real estate because then I can become successful that way. Gotcha. And then what did you do to acquire that knowledge? Was it podcast? A lot of people read Rich Dad, Poor Dad, and it kind of sets them <laughs> off this <laughs> this journey. Well, what was yes. that? What was that? trigger point for you after you did that research that 90% of millionaires became so through real estate? Yeah. Well, I mean, that's funny that you mentioned Rich Dad Porta because that was actually the first book I read, like so many other people. <laughs> I got turned on to the Bigger Pockets podcast and uh, I listened to a few episodes of that and people kept mentioning their favorite book um, was Rich Dad Poor Dad. It was kind of near the beginning of the podcast. Um, and uh, through that, I realized, huh, well, if everybody keeps saying that's their favorite book. Maybe I should start with that one. So, um, yeah, I, I started with that. And at the same time as reading that, I started like a, a video course as well with uh, this guy called The Clever Investor. Uh, his name's Cody Sperber. And so he does a video course on breaking down real estate. He kind of focused more on wholesaling aspects of things. Uh, but I was just kind of wanting to just acquire any kind of knowledge at this point. I didn't really know exactly which avenue I wanted to go down. Um, and uh, I read Rich Dad, Poor Dad. And that book completely shifted my mindset, understanding the difference between assets and liabilities. And and uh, completely got me on the mindset to, man, okay, I know what I need to do now. I need to focus on ac acquisition of assets and and just anything I can do to to make my money work for me essentially. So yeah. it was a game changer. Yeah, yeah, for me too. I mean, if anybody out there who's listening hasn't read Rich Dad Poor Dad, I would highly recommend it. It's the total 
mind shift um, switch for anybody who reads it, reads it, and you know, using your assets to pay off, you know, your liabilities or your expenses um, instead of using yep. your income from your day job. Um, okay, so you re so you read those books and you were interested in real estate, and then in terms of real estate knowledge, you did the Cody Sperber course, and then of course Bigger Pockets podcast, which I completely love, um, which where they interview a bunch of you know, very successful real estate investors. Um, I love listening to those as well. And you can learn a lot. Then what Absolutely. did, what did you, what did you do from there? You know, you had this knowledge. Did you ever go into wholesaling, um, with the Cody Sperber course? So it, it got me intrigued in it. And I kind of put a kind of a weak effort at wholesaling, um, and kind of decided fast that it wasn't the kind of thing I wanted to go for. Um, I kind of took the easy way out, I guess you could say. <laughs> but um, I, I decided that I, I really wanted to focus on buy and hold. Um, but I wanted to focus on buy and hold assets in the sense of not just kind of going for pure cash flow, but how could I scale in a faster way? Um, and I felt like by identifying markets that have a lot of opportunity for appreciation, um, but yet still have good cash flow at the same time, I felt would afford me the opportunity to scale faster than just saving up for just one after the other, which is kind of, I guess, the, you know, one way to do it, but uh, it's a little bit slower that way too. Um, so I, I wanted to see how fast could I expedite it within reason to, with with not kind of sacrificing the, clack, the cash flow at the same time. Gotcha. Yeah, exactly. And then, so how did you figure out those markets? Were there any, where right away you, you were okay with investing out of state? Um, or was oh, there some, uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> so tell no. me that because, because for me, like I, you know, started learning about investing when I lived in the Bay area and I was like, okay, I want to buy, you know, the house next door, of course, because I know the area, I know the neighborhood. Right. Exactly. But, um, then you kind of slowly start increasing your geography and you realize that you can't buy anything within, you know, 300 miles of where you live. Um, so, you know, what was that progression for you? Yeah. So, you know, the journey of kind of where I wanted to target was it was kind of a journey of while I was educating myself, too. So if it, to put it into better words, like uh, I started off in California, because like you said, like, you know, the, the, the house next door is the kind of like the easiest way to go. You know, the neighborhood, you know, you know, kind of what that looks like. And it's easier to kind of put it in your head of like, OK, well, I could drive down the street and check on my rental or whatever when you're kind of first thinking about things. Um, but as I started understanding more and I read more books um, and real estate and understanding the numbers better and, and what good cash flow actually looks like, I started realizing that I can't really find this here. It's this Southern California market has gotten way too hot. Um, it, it, it's not putting forth the kind of cash flow that I personally want to see in my investments. Um, and so I realized I had to start looking somewhere else. Um, and so I just kind of started exploring the idea. I, you know, again, I, I researched on, you know, plenty on bigger pockets and I, and I saw a lot of other people had been starting to kind of step into that same realm. So I realized it was possible. And, um, you know, I started reaching out to different people and, uh, I kind of just decided that, you know, I felt like this was the right move, uh, for me, you know, it's funny. I was just telling someone the other day, you know, like, it's like, uh, some people will tell you like, Oh, don't go out of state. It's, you know, it's too risky, this and that. And at first when you're not really that well educated on it, you kind of take everyone's opinion at face value, you know? And the only way I felt secure in my decision was to constantly keep educating myself to where I felt confident enough in my own opinion that I knew I wasn't going to be making a mistake by doing this. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And for me too, I mean, for me as well, because I, again, wanted to invest locally here in California, realized cash flow didn't make any sense at all here. So I had to force myself, you know, I had my back against the wall and I kind of, I wanted to buy rental properties with cash flow, had my back against the wall and I was like, okay, where, where in the U.S. then can I buy these rental properties? Yes. And, you know, through that research, like, like you, I found that out of state was the way to go and I just needed to increase my knowledge of those places and make my knowledge of those places just as much as I have of my local market. Um, and then, you know, whether that means cross-referencing people's information on the ground from property management to realtors or whatever it may be, or to actually go out to these markets and 
meet with the people and meet with the people who live in those neighborhoods, you know, all that kind of stuff. And yeah, you're right. Like the knowledge made, made me definitely feel more comfortable of putting my own money and my investors money into those deals out of state. Um, but it, you know, it does take time of course, because investing locally, you already have all that knowledge. So you don't need to spend the time to go and get it because you already, you grew up in, in that neighborhood or whatever it may be. Um, so it's a much faster process. Exactly. Yeah. And then, so how did your, what does your first deal look like? How did you figure out which market to buy in? Um, I guess talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. Great question. I mean, uh, market wise was the first step for me. You know, I, I knew before I could pull the trigger on any deal, I had to know which market I was going to target. And, uh, for me, I, cash flow was always first and foremost at the, at the front of my priority list. So, um, I, I found a list of, uh, some of the top cash flowing, uh, cities and areas kind of, you know, bigger metropolitan areas and stuff. Um, and uh, I kind of put together a spreadsheet and kind of weighed out a lot of the pros and cons of the area, things like, you know, crime and job growth and population growth and, uh, you know, so many different aspects of, I guess, um, you know, what was taking place there with economic development or uh, and so on and so forth. And, and, and I came down to uh, Atlanta um, was my number one uh, target for uh, target market market. And, um, I, I saw so much good stuff going on there, you know, uh, corporation relocations, it's such a strong, diverse economy, um, you know, strong rental market. Um, uh, the only thing that I saw, I guess, as a downside was the crime in that area. And, uh, uh, but after doing more research and I realized that it's more about finding the right pockets and right areas, uh, within that area to, to 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 be successful in avoiding you know high crime areas and everything uh it's kind of funny at first before i kind of got to that point i kind of thought i saw a lot of numbers of you know this place called uh east point and uh and it looked from a numbers perspective like killer cash flow deals and i was <laughs> like oh my goodness this place is unbelievable yeah <laughs> After doing more research, I found out this place was like one of the most dangerous places in America. <laughs> so oh my god! I was like, thank God I didn't pull the trigger on something over there, and I actually did some more research. So that's why it's so important to anyone out there listening right now. It's so important to do your research and not just get kind of uh, caught up in the numbers and go, oh my gosh, that works on paper. Because if your place is dealing with tons of maintenance issues and, and you're dealing with high vacancies and, and, uh, and your evictions and stuff like that, it kills all your cash flow anyway. So yeah. it, it looks better on paper than it really is. Yeah. But anyway, uh, all that to say, I, I ended up settling on a suburb called Decatur um, outside of Atlanta, about 15 minutes away. Um, a lot of people were commuting from that area. And uh, one thing that I really liked about that particular suburb was there was so much gentrification taking place in that area. And so I, I saw, because I actually flew out there. Okay, so you went and visited. and Yeah, because gentrification from, you know, from being an out-of-state investor is, is pretty hard to navigate and know what's up and coming. Whereas if you just fly out there and go and drive the streets, you can kind of, you can tell what's what's happening and what neighborhood is, is moving and shaking. So that's good that you went out there and, and visited. That's it's a much better way to see that uh, an area is definitely gentrifying. Yeah, and one cool thing that I, I did when I was out there is I, I actually started seeing the signs of some of the uh, companies that um, were actually doing some of these flips. Um, and so I found them online, and I could actually find some of the houses that hadn't even gone on the market yet. And so I could see which streets were going to have renovated homes coming uh -huh. on them and were listed on the market. Love it. So yeah, so I, I kind of I, I took note of that and, and uh, I found a, a house, a great house, a single family house that uh, was on a street that there had already been some um, uh, renovated houses that had been put on the market there and had sold already. But I, I knew there were going to be more coming from driving the streets. Uh, I saw some work going on in some of the houses and I was like, hey, this is, this is really happening. And then um, I also saw it got to the point where the the market in that area was one out of three houses put on the market um, was a rehabbed house. It was unbelievable. Wow. 
I, I'd never seen any other market like that um, where it's literally one in three. Wow. But it had just started to get to that point. And I think I kind of caught it just in time before it just exploded. Um, I, so that part of that is a bit lucky that I kind of caught it just in time because if I would have seen it maybe like a couple months later, yeah. I may have just missed out on a, a chance for even more uh, appreciation and whatnot. Yeah. Okay. So this. So how did you, from from your computer back in Long Beach, how did you come to the point of decanter? Did you what tools did you use? I guess to to figure out. All right. This is this is the place that I want to be. Was it? Did you ever get on the phone and phone call a lot of people, or did Absolutely. you did you use the web? You know, what websites did you use? I guess resources to to get the info to actually book the flight, you know, to go and visit it. Sure, sure. So, I mean, I was using a lot of different sites to check out the area. You know, I'm checking out uh, sites, typical sites like, uh, you know, Redfin or Zillow or whatnot, just to kind of check out what kind of houses are on the market um, in the area. And, and you can kind of see, you know, just from that, you know, how fast, you know, houses are, houses have been on, the, how long they've been on the market or, you know, basic things like that, at least to start off with. Uh, there's sites like City Data um, that I like to use for getting a, a kind of a more closer look at, at the sub-markets and everything. And, you know, I could see it had a strong rental market there. And uh, um, there were there were a lot of good pros to it. Um, and on a crime side of things, which I think was my kind of number two priority for being out of state, um, it, it, it didn't look that bad. It was about a C plus neighborhood. It's maybe a C kind of trending to B. Um, and so I like the potential of it potentially going to that B area. Uh, so, yeah. So, I mean, you know, sites like Redfin, I, li I liked Rentometer um, to kind of uh, use for calculating potential rents in the area. Um, uh, but also Zillow and Craigslist, all those kind of things too. Gotcha. So. Gotcha. Yeah. And then did you did you find a property management company and a realtor and all those kinds of things before you went out and, and visited? Yeah. So actually, I, well, I set up meetings in advance. Gotcha. Um, and, I, and I met some some people I met on bigger pockets. And then sometimes I what I like to do is leverage those relationships. Um, I, I, oftentimes a realtor, if you find a good investor friendly uh, real estate agent, um, they'll have some good contacts to go off anyway. Um, so through my real estate agent, I actually, uh, got introduced to, uh, property management and, uh, a lender through that. Of course, I still, uh, interviewed other people just to kind of have a balance of, you know, people to weigh off each yeah. other. Um, I always recommend doing that. Yep. Um, but, um, but yeah, but ultimately I, I, I felt most confident with them. And I mean, the, my, my real estate agent was a seasoned investor as well which made me feel even more confident. Um, you know, he, I, the way I like to utilize my agent is to also give me insights into the market and stuff like that as well. So, Love yeah. It. Okay, cool. Yeah, so I've done that as well. So when I'm building a team too, of course, do a, all my research up front, know the market like as well as I can from the computer. And then I go in and I make a bunch of phone calls, try to set up meetings on the ground. And then, you know, whether that be with everybody, right? So property management companies, realtors, uh, contractors, if if needed. Um, if you're doing some really nice rehabs and you may want to meet with some contractors and see their work. But yeah, definitely, yeah. you know, making those meetings up front and then booking your flight and having a, because, you know, many people like you who are millennials who work full time don't have time during the week to, to go out. They can't take the week off, right? So they got to do everything in one weekend or or take Monday or Tuesday off. So how did you, do you remember how you played that? Did you take the whole week off to go and visit or did you do it over the weekend? Were you, were you working during that time? Yeah, I was working. So I, I don't remember exactly where it fell in the week, but uh, I, I know that I, I definitely took some vacation time to make yeah. that happen or, you know, I kind of wiggled it around to make that work one way or another. Gotcha. All right, cool. So then, all right. So you went and visited, you had all these meetings with a bunch of different people after you've done your homework. And then did you, from, from those meetings that you had, you kind of said, okay, this is, you went home and thought about it and you, you realized who your team was. And then how did you, um, how did you come up with that first? Was that where you bought your first property was in Decanter? Yes, exactly. So I, I actually visited the, the property that, um, 
I no oh, no really. You know, you know what? I didn't actually, because I actually was under contract on a duplex, which I fell out of. Oh, okay. Um, so then I went back, but I had already knew the area. So then when something came up, I knew it was a good deal or a bad deal at that yeah. point. So then, yeah, I actually didn't end up going to visit for that property. I didn't need to, to do that because I could have my real estate agent go in with video yep. and check it out for me. And I didn't need to be there physically at that point exactly. um, to do that. Exactly. You have inspections and stuff for that. Yeah, stuff. I love that. Yeah, I love that. Doing your homework up front, booking a bunch of meetings, going and meeting those people who are on the ground. And then once you're on the ground with those people, kind of figure out, all right, this is my team. And then from there, you kind of just sit and wait is what I like to call it. Just sitting and waiting on Redfin for that deal to come up that you can hit. Um, yeah. And then once you do, then you send your realtor or property manager, whoever it may be, to go through that property, take photos or videos and then send your contractor through as well to get the rehab bid. Um, at least that's how I do. Is that how you, you, you did it after that trip? Yeah. And you know, one thing, I guess you made a kind of a, a good point there is, you know, waiting on the Redfin to alert you. Like I set up alerts on all my sites that I use. So I'll typically use, you know, Zillow, Redfin, Realtor.com, like all those sites yeah. to notify me immediately whenever something in my parameters comes up it will immediately send an email to me. And when you're dealing with kind of a, a market that has some competition, it can be very handy to be the first one to get in there and, uh, you know, exactly. maybe even snag the deal. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, for, for me, especially in my markets too, I mean, speed is, and especially in Atlanta where you are, I mean, geez, it's, it's so competitive over there right now. The market's just completely exploded that every deal that comes on the market has 10, 20 offers on it where, Seriously. you know, some of my markets, there may be one or two. Um, and just because of the way that my markets are positioned or whatever it may be, but still, if I don't act fast, those good deals are swooped up by the big guys really fast. Um, but so you, if you can be, you know, very nimble and on your toes and, you know, it could be a little bit difficult if you do have a full-time job and you have to check stuff during the weekend. Um, or after work. So I guess how do you how do you handle that then? Working full time, let's say a deal comes up in the middle of the day, is your job flexible enough to where you can check it on your phone and run the numbers on your phone and send it over to you know your your boots on the ground, or how do you kind of manage you know the work your work balance with your investing? Are you you know do you have any sort of flexibility during the day? Yeah. So, I mean, what I have is, uh, you know, I mean, I typically start at nine in the morning. So um, I, um, I'll i typically have like breaks uh, throughout the day. Like I have like a 10 a.m. break. I have a three o'clock break. Um, and then I got my lunchtime. So I just try to utilize those times to the best of my ability, you know, and then I can, you know, run those deals during those times and whatnot. Love it. Cool. Yeah. And that's what that's what's very important, too, about finding a very specific uh, neighborhood that you want to be in because then, you know, if you only have, let's say an hour and a half during the day to be, you know, while your team is working to actually be looking at deals, there's only so many deals that you can analyze in an hour and a half or look at. Um, yeah. So setting your targets again and, and choosing a, a very small neighborhood that you like, that you, that the numbers work well in and just setting your targets and waiting for something to come up. Um, that's a, yeah, that's a good recommendation. And then, so how did, what does your first deal look like then? So you were, you were under contract on a duplex when you went and visited, but then you came back um, home. You were like, all right, this is my team that I'm going to move forward with. And then how long did it take you to find, to get that first deal under contract that you ended up moving forward with? Yeah. So it was actually the next month, um, uh, about a month later, I, f I found, um, a deal uh, that I put an offer in and I actually had two offers in at the same time, but the other one didn't work out. Um, I didn't win that, that offer for that one, but I won the offer for this one. Um, so yeah, so um, three bedroom, one and a half bath, single family house. Nice. And so was the property vacant? Was it listed on the market? So you know what it was, um, it was listed on the market it was an MLS deal. Um, it had a, uh, section eight tenant, which at first scared me to death. 
I saw Section 8 and I heard so many nightmare stories about Section 8 and, you know, and that's where I think it helped having a, uh, an experienced investor that was also my agent uh, because he assured me that although it's a Section 8 tenant, it doesn't automatically guarantee that they're going to be bad tenants. You know, there are good stories with Section 8 tenants, and, and that was kind of my understanding, okay, maybe I need to look a little deeper into it. And I realized when I was doing my due diligence um, on the on the property, I found out that the tenant had always been paying on time, um, that uh, the the tenant was uh, had been there for almost 23 years. So... I was talking about potentially maybe not having to really deal with too much vacancy issue. So that kind of gives you some upside to your return on investment as well. Um, and so when I kind of started to, you know, look at all that and check out the rent rolls and all that stuff, I, I realized, you know what, maybe this isn't going to be too bad of a situation, even though it's a Section 8 tenant. Yeah. And then so so you bought that property and then I'm assuming you didn't put much money in. Did you do any repairs after you bought the property? So, you know what? The property was in, in rentable shape already. I, I mean, it wasn't in, uh, you know, phenomenal shape, but uh, all it really needed uh, was basically some gutters and downspouts. So that was, you know, you're talking about like 1300 bucks there or something. So it really wasn't that bad. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I got the house for like $63,000. Um, so okay. yeah. 20% cool. down on that is not too bad. Yeah. Okay. So then you, and then about property management, did you just use the same property management company that was currently managing it? Um, no, I didn't. Was I actually, I switched it over to the property management. I met, um, okay. My, uh, real estate agent. Nice. Okay. So the, and that's one of those. Oh, okay. Was it a, so it was a referral off of your realtor. Yes, exactly. Love it. Yeah. That's, that's something that I tell people to do all the time is just, you know, make all those phone calls, however many it is, 20 or 50 to all those different people on the ground, realtors, property managers, contractors, banks, etc. And then just ask them for referrals and you'll see what names keep popping up and then call those people. <laughs> and then when, you, when you're there, you know, make meetings with those people who are top recommendations of, of you know, three or four different groups. And those are going to be your teams who... Um, you should move forward with yeah so section 8 tenant do you still own that property today is the tenant still there yes tenants still there paid on time every month nice. uh, we've uh we've managed to raise the rent a couple times in one year which is kind of funny because we i guess it was already under market rent when we acquired it um but because it's a section 8 tenant you know you're dealing halfway with the the housing authority of the county yeah. Um, and so, uh, our property management was great. Um, and they had had a 100% success rate with raising rent with the, uh, housing authority in that County, which was awesome. So, uh, we, we just went for it, raised it right off the bat within a couple of months. We were, you know, had raised the rent and then, uh, we were able to recently raise it again this year as well. So love it. awesome. And then, so for the down payment for that 60 grand is around like 15 grand, did you just have that from saving up uh, from you working and saving up your Christmas money or how do you, yeah. uh, is that how it was? And then you were able to get a conventional loan just through some bank. Um, whether that was it a big bank that you used or. Yeah. So we, uh, we used a, a mortgage broker. Um, and so he basically, for those that don't know, a mortgage broker uh, shops around, uh, different rates versus a mortgage lender, which will just basically give you, they are the, basically the direct person you are dealing with for the loan. Uh, so we went through a mortgage broker um, and uh, yeah, basically shopped around the rates and everything and uh, yeah, went about it that way. Cool. And then you were able to get a loan because you had that, you had been working for, I'm assuming two years or more, um, which allowed you to then be financeable, right? exactly all right good yeah that's an important point too and you know a lot of people listening are out of college or never went to college and have some sort of income maybe with a double two w2 job but you know to get to get the kind of financing that james is talking about here is you know you need what's called w2 income which is pretty much working as an employee for a company for two years it doesn't need to be the same company but 
you need two years of solid income and solid tax returns in order to get a mortgage. Um, so yeah. those that's why it's important to, um, you know, if you are working full time and you want to acquire rental properties in this in this fashion that James is talking about or buying turnkey rental properties, it's important to keep your job so that you can be financeable and you don't have to go through, you know, a commercial lender and pay higher interest and, and get worse terms. Um, so I guess after that, after that purchase that you had, then what did you, what did you do? Did you hold, did you own it for a couple of months and then just kept looking for more deals in decanter or, um, how did your deals progress after that? Yeah. So, I mean, uh, yeah, I held it for a few months. I kind of wanted, because it was my first deal, I kind of wanted to take it one step at a time and not try to go too fast on it. Uh, but once I had everything, you know, kind of in place and rolling, I was, we started looking for deals uh, again. And, uh, you know, um, I had started talking, uh, with my brother about what I had been doing. Um, and he was highly interested in getting into the real estate game too. So, um, you know, I started saving up, um, uh, again, you know, I, me and my wife, we live, uh, very frugally, um, just so that we can save up as much money as we can uh, for these investments. And uh, so we just kind of went back to it again and, and kept saving up and kept saving up. And, and I found an opportunity. Um, uh, but this time it wasn't in Decatur, though. And the thing is, is like I said before, uh, I kind of got one of those last deals in that area before it exploded. I was kind of lucky in that sense. Um, and so it was harder to find deals in that area. Uh, once the summertime and springtime hit. Um, and so I, I found a multifamily um, in another market. And normally up until then, I hadn't really been kind of scouting out. I try to stay for the most part focused in on, you know, where I'm going to invest in. Exactly. Um, but I think I was just kind of having one of those days where I was really bored and I just kind of started like, you know, <laughs> zooming out on Redfin and, you know, getting rid of the, you know, the barriers of the, yeah the edges of everything. I was like, what's out here, you know, what's <laughs> out there. And, and then I just randomly found, you know, this, this triplex that was on the market and had just been listed like maybe like six hours ago or something at the time. And I was like, Whoa, this is actually a good deal, but I don't know anything about this market. So I can't possibly do this deal. And plus I don't have the money. So I just gave up. No, I'm just kidding. So what really happened <laughs> Well, uh, next story. No, so I started figuring out how can I make this work? How can how can I do this? So um, I, I ran the numbers. It made perfect sense. So, and I started just immediately just like putting all the effort I could into studying this market, seeing what was going on, you know, and it's kind of similar to what I said before, you know, with Atlanta, uh, you know, analyzing every aspect of, you know, from crime to schools to, um, you know, economic development to all, all these aspects you want to look for in a good market. And it, 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 whilst it didn't seem as strong, and I guess I don't know if I've mentioned it, we're talking about Knoxville, Tennessee right now. Um, but um, whilst it didn't seem like as strong as Atlanta, which was kind of like, you know, Atlanta's kind of a powerhouse right now. It's killing it. Um, but it, whilst it didn't seem as strong as that, I did see some potential in what was going on. And, and I liked what was going on in that area. And and most importantly, the numbers work, too. So um, And so was it a duplex or how many units was it? So this was a triplex, so three, oh, three triplex. building. That's right. Um, and uh, and like I said, I didn't have all the money to to make the purchase, and I was you know thinking, okay, I'll just save up down the road and eventually get it. But when this deal came on the market, I I, I talked to my brother who had I had already kind of been introducing to real estate and getting him on some books and stuff to read and everything, and and I walked him through everything, and and he was he got really excited about it, and so. Uh, we knew it was a great deal and uh, we were one of the first ones to see it. So uh, yeah, we, we reached, I reached out to an agent and, uh, and uh, touch base uh, and uh, confirmed with uh, the agent that it was a good area. But what I always like to do is cross check because sometimes uh, be careful. Sometimes real estate agents are salespeople, you know, so <laughs> they want to meet their commission. Yeah. <laughs> so I always like to have at least two people I'm checking with at the very minimum you know, so I, I called up uh, a property management as well and got their thoughts on the area as well. 
and they confirmed it was also in a good area as well. And it was, you know, by a, an area that was really up and coming and stuff like that. So, so anyway, things made sense. And, uh, and me and my brother decided to go in on it together 50, 50. Um, and so, yeah, so we ended up making an offer and we ended up getting it. Wow. That's great. So how many days do you think it took you to do all that research and find all those teams while working full time? Well, I was up almost all night because oh I found gosh. it. I found it at like eight o'clock or something like that, or maybe it was yeah, maybe like eight o'clock at night my time, and um, sometime in the evening after dinner. And I just spent literally the whole time just researching that area over and over again because, like you said, you know, area uh, houses can go so fast, and so I really wanted to, you know, if it made all made sense, I wanted to make an offer within the next couple of couple of days at least. So. Um, so yeah, so I just was pretty much as much as I could. I think it was on a weekend too. So I was able to work it where, you know, the next day was, you know, no work or anything like that. So I was pretty much just, yeah, yeah, real estate junkie that day. Wow. And then how did you find time to call all those property management companies and realtors in the new Knoxville market? If you only have, did you, did you really call them on your breaks and on your lunch and stuff like that? Yeah, Absolutely. So yeah, come to think of it now, so it must have not been on a weekend. It must have been on a, on a maybe a Thursday or something. Um, but yeah, but I, I absolutely utilized all my breaks, and you know, I even got up extra early too because uh, the cool thing about dealing with Eastern Standard Time is they're three hours ahead. So if I get up at six a.m., it's nine a.m. over there. So I could utilize my time even better by getting up really early in the morning, and and I could start reaching out to them first thing when I woke up. Love it. Love the hustle. Yeah. And then how many, so how did you find your property management companies there? And then for this deal, did you actually go out and visit this market as well? Or did you close on it before visiting? So yeah, I definitely visited it as well. So I flew out there and uh, yeah, I set up a bunch of meetings with different property managers. And uh, um, at this time, I didn't go too strongly off the opinion of the real estate agent just because uh, I hadn't uh, uh, had a long uh, much of a history with this agent i kind of was you know kind of in a rush dealing with it which typically i wouldn't recommend to people funnily enough but um you know it was just kind of the nature i guess of the beast beast on this one so okay so you put it so you put it you made an offer put it under contract and then i guess you just booked your flight right away huh yeah pretty much yeah exactly oh, wow. so i had my due diligence period so i was able to work it around and uh um yeah Okay, and then do you still own that deal today? Was it was that deal already rented out? Yeah, so uh, that deal uh, had two of the units uh, rented out. Um, yeah, two units were rented out, um, but then uh, w we had to. Well, a very unfortunate situation happened where uh, one of our tenants uh, committed suicide um, a oh week God. after we closed on it. Wow. Yeah, it was it was crazy. It was absolutely crazy. And uh but you know, this is where having an experienced property management really yeah. came to uh into play and uh you know, they they were amazing with the way they handled the situation. Wow. And of course, we felt terrible for, you know, the guy and the family because I literally met the guy before we closed on it and everything and he seemed fine and everything, but um wow. You know, um but yeah, I mean, we, we, we did what we had to do and, uh, you know, we cleaned it all up and got it all, uh, you know, back on the market and everything within a month or maybe like a few weeks or so. Wow, that's crazy. And then so did the property besides that need much work done to it or was that third unit kind of just needed a clean up and then it was ready to go? Yeah, so uh, the other one was uh, it just needed some maintenance to be done to it. Um, and there, there was some rehab needing to be done on that, uh, triplex. Like we had to, uh, put a new HVAC system on and, um, there were some, you know, opportunities for increasing our net operating income, like, you know, submetering the water and, uh, to the tenant and submetering, even the electricity wasn't even submetered funnily enough. It was like, cause the HVAC systems was like, you know, one system for like two of the units and stuff like that. Wow. Yeah, it's terrible. Can you, yeah, can you explain what, what sub-metering means? Yeah, sure. So when you're dealing with multifamily, 
Um, oftentimes you'll find like when, when you talk about utilities, like the water, um, most commonly the water more than anything like you'll see that the water pretty much is just one water meter keeping track of the whole property um of how much water usage is taking place um but the problem is is because there's only one water meter and there's three tenants you can't accurately figure out who has used how much water so you end up oftentimes being the one that ends up having to foot the bill for all the tenant water usage but, um, you know, if you can, um, we figured out that because um, we actually had two water meters, funnily enough, uh, for three units, which was weird. But we were footing the bill for everybody because, again, it was still kind of one of them wasn't registered properly and all that kind of stuff. But we realized all we had to do was add one water meter and then we could submeter it to all three of them. And that one water meter cost fourteen hundred dollars but our water bill was about 140 so we basically would make all our money back in a year if just submetered the water so yeah so those are kind of cool little value adds you can do on multifamily too yeah. yeah and especially and imagine if there's there's a it comes into play too when you're dealing with a lot larger buildings of course when you have you know 10 or 20 units 30 units and you know the water is not sub meters there's only a couple of water water heaters or water tanks um water meters i mean um then it becomes a, a huge play and a huge value add component when buying these larger multifamily buildings because you can go in and just sub meter everything and save all a ton of money on utilities and utility bills and a lot of mom and pop landlords don't know that or don't even want to spend the money to to save that cost but in the end in the long run it saves a ton more money than it than it costs absolutely yeah and so are you still holding that that property today yes yeah it's it's turned out to be a great cash flowing property awesome and then since then have you bought more deals in that same neighborhood and was this neighborhood a, a gentrifying area as well or was it more of just a, a blue collar neighborhood yeah, kind of. It, it, I guess kind of a little bit of both. I mean, the, the specific uh, you know area is a bit more blue collarish uh, area, but it's kind of uh, neighboring areas are uh, kind of uh, gentrifying a bit. So, gotcha. um, yeah. So that was kind of the gotcha. situation with that. And then, is there any crime in that area too, or you, or is there no crime in that Knoxville neighborhood? Yeah, it's it's pretty good for crime as a whole. Actually, Knoxville in general, like, has yeah. pretty crime rates to uh, pretty much all the way around. You know. Yeah, yeah, yeah love it. Yeah, because for me too, one of the things, and I was listening to another podcast last week, I think, and it was like the one thing that you can't change is crime in a neighborhood. You know, you can you can remove crime from your property if you have like a large multifamily, but don't think you can come in and change a neighborhood and you know make it all pretty and nice and rid the crime it takes years and years and years to to do that and it takes you know the city and the city needs to be behind you and you know the mayor needs to be behind you in order to to get yeah. those kinds of jobs done and yeah so i steer i steer clear for i steer clear from crime as well and um and that's funny too that you mentioned the section 8 tenants as well i have been staying away from section 8 tenants as well for a really long time and then I bought a property with a Section 8 tenant in there, and that tenant had been living in the property for 10 or 12 years or something like that. They'd been paying every time on time, and I was just like, okay, well, I'm going to let her stay. She's paying market rents, um, and I'm guaranteed a check from the government. And sure, exactly. it's Section 8 tenant, but you know she's been there for, for 12 years, and she has, you know, her retirement is just, her Social Security is just paying her so that she can live there, et cetera, so... It was like in the end, it became like a really perfect scenario. Um, and something too that I learned about Section Eight was that if they wreck your property or do some damage to your property um, before vacating, uh, let's say their lease is up and they need to leave and move. Let's say if the property is is extremely damaged for whatever reason, then they actually lose their Section Eight voucher, so they can't actually go and rent another property through Section Eight. So. It's a very strict system, um, and the people who are in there who you know keep moving around or continually use Section Eight um, are typically vetted pretty regularly, and then they are also checked up upon. You know, they do like Section Eight inspections 
as well, I believe. Have you been having those on your property where they come, I think they come every six months to come and check up your property and make sure it's still fit to the Section 8 standards? You know, that's funny. Yeah, I, I don't know anything about that happening. Uh, maybe that's because they've dealt mostly with my property management and not me. Uh, so maybe that's that's what that is. Yeah, yeah. But that's it's something too to not be scared of the people listening to not be scared of section eight and if you know just run your numbers as if it were any other deal and don't be scared of a section eight tenant the you're at least guaranteed some money from the government and sometimes yeah. sometimes the tenants out there on the market are even worse than the tenants that you can be <laughs> you know so true. guaranteed so true. rent yeah depending on where you're investing yes yes yeah. all right so knoxville and then what was your so you've had done four deals in total so what were the what did the other two look like and where were those deals? Oh, sorry. I, I've done one other deal besides that one. Okay. So I got, um, I also did um, what they call wholetailing. So that's kind of like basically a flip, um, except you're not actually renovating anything really. Um, so, um, yeah. So I, I, I got that deal in Atlanta. Um, and uh, yeah, one of our wholesale, one of our wholesalers that we had built a, a contact with, uh, he sent us a deal uh, that was a killer deal. Um, I mean, we we were looking at the comps, and literally in the last nine months, this was like the lowest priced house that had come on, and it's been like the the area had gentrified since then, and everything. I was like, oh my gosh, this is insane. Wow. So um, so yeah, we ended up uh, paying for that um, in cash. Um, and, um, we, we borrowed some money. Um, we utilized, uh, uh, I utilized, uh, uh, my parents, uh, money as well with my brother and I, and we all kind of, all four of us kind of went in together on that deal. Um, and yeah, all we literally did was because the thing is, is for me, I, I, I knew we could have probably flipped that and, and made a nice killing on it. But I think just from being out of state, uh, running a whole flip, whilst having a full-time job just seemed like <laughs> really <think>. big <laughs> undertaking you know what i mean yeah um so i just felt like you know what we could still make a nice a pretty nice killing even without doing anything to it and literally just putting it on the mls and so oh, that's, that's what you did all we did is we literally we bought it off market um and we literally just cut the grass essentially <laughs> um, <laughs> Yeah, it's our cut the grass clip, and um, and because it was a horrible uh, landscaping they had done, so we literally just took care of that, and um, and uh, yeah, we just literally threw it back on the market as is, um, trying to appeal more to an investor, you know, who would want to flip it or something, or maybe use it as a rental because it was actually in semi-rentable shape, actually, to be honest. So it, it could appeal to you know multiple investors and stuff, and so and it was vacant too. So of course, so you know, um, a flipper could do something with it too. And so yeah, we we threw it on the market, and and yeah, it was it was a great deal, and and we made a nice little profit out of it. Wow. And, uh, and, and how it was, yeah, and how fast were you able to turn that over? Yeah, so literally from the minute we closed. <laughs> on buying the property to yeah. the minute we had closed on selling the property it had been just over a month oh my god so i've never a... yeah i've never heard of anybody doing that before <laughs> oh yeah my it was god. crazy wow so you literally bought so you imagine getting a deal from a wholesaler in your inbox you bought it with all cash you cut the grass and took some better photos maybe yeah unless you just cut cut the grass and then retook some photos put it back on the market on the, well, put it on the MLS now, and then you kind of just sat and waited for for offers to come in. Yeah, wow. and we had a lot of competition for it too. Oh my god! And so, and you you already had your team on the ground there, right? So you had your agent and property manager um, to help you with with doing that. Yeah, love it, love Absolutely. it. That's awesome. So, where did you did you actually list that property on the MLS with that that agent who had helped you in Decanter? No, so I actually I ended up uh, going with an agent who was more because this was actually not in Decatur. This property it was in a another zip code neighboring Decatur, but I was actually pretty familiar with the area. Um, 
And uh, I just decided to go with an agent that was selling in that area more so, um, just to kind of go with someone that was, I guess, had more local knowledge of that specific zip code and whatnot. Got it. Love it. That's awesome. Yeah, definitely. I've never heard of anybody doing that before. I mean, most of the most of the deals I get from wholesalers are either too overpriced or their ARVs are way off or their yeah. rehab estimates a fifth of what it should be. That's crazy. Yeah, it's yeah. so true. Wow. Okay. Um, is there anything... So we're getting up to an hour now. I'd like to keep them at an hour. Is there any... Um, recommendations I guess you would have for millennials who are looking to get started and maybe in a situation like you with a full-time job and want to get into real estate but don't really know how to take that first step and maybe don't have enough money to to get started yeah I mean I would say uh, definitely educate yourself spend time getting to learn um, what you're doing so you you can avoid uh, most of the mistakes you can avoid you're always gonna make something wrong but you know, you can at least mitigate a lot of the risk that way. Um, try to get to know people um, that are trying to do the same thing as you, because you're going to be way more likely to succeed in what your goal is if you're surrounded by other people shooting for that same goal. Love it. Awesome. Yeah. And going back to that, I mean, the way that we met, I think that either I hit you up on bigger pockets on a direct message or you did to me. Or vice versa, just because I I read your profile, or you read mine, whatever it may be, and you know we both said that we were young guys who were investing out of state and had a couple of properties under our belt, and I was like, okay, let's meet for lunch and, and chat about it then, and that's literally how we met, and you know now we can bounce ideas off of each other and talk to each other if anything ever were to come up in in one of our different markets. Absolutely, love it. 100%. Love it. Great recommendation. Well, thanks for coming. Um, if people want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do so to maybe ask you some more questions? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, you can find me on a, on the biggerpockets.com uh, website. You know, just search uh, my name, James Allen, um, and I'm sure you'll find me um, from uh, the L.A. area. So you'll, you'll be able to find me, no problem. Love it. Awesome. Well, thanks for coming on the podcast. Um, that was definitely helpful to to people out there who want to get started and to share your experience and how you got started just a couple of years ago and um, wish you the most success and we'll be talking to you soon. Thanks, man. Thanks for Thanks. having me. Thanks. No problem.